It's very, very easy uh, for me to get distracted and lost. Uh, whenever we are um, going around the town, yesterday we went over to Silver Lake um, and there's like all these little shops and stuff. Um, so we're just walking. It's very easy for me to get kind of like into like one track mode. And then like Aaron and Emma and like everybody else that I know, the rest of the party just kind of like leaves. And I'm just kind of there. Uh, and then I like snap too and I have no idea where I'm at. Um, this is particularly dangerous uh, for me in bookstores. Um, and yeah, last summer, I know there's some of you here um, that you share my, my, my problem. Um, last summer, uh, my wife and I, for our anniversary, uh, we went to Portland. Um, and so part of our, our trip was going to Powell's Bookstore um, in downtown. How many of you have ever been to the City of Books? It's a little piece of heaven. Um, it is, they refer to this giant bookstore that takes up a whole block um, as the City of Books. It's 68,000 square feet. It has 3,500 different sections and over $4 million in their inventory. And so uh, I walk in with Erin standing next to me, and I'm already, like, amazed at what I'm seeing here. And she just kind of, like, whispers in my ear, go crazy. Uh, <laughs> and I fell in love again. Um, and I did. Um, I, I, went, I went crazy. I spent um, a huge chunk of time in, like, the science fiction area and, like, looking through stuff. That's one of my favorite things to read. Um, but then uh, I made my way over to the biblical studies section, uh, which was surprising in, like, Portland that they had such a big section. But they did. Oh, did they? Um, and so I'm reading books, I'm comparing different things, and this stack is growing and growing and growing now that I've got uh, weird, like, you know, not even non non-canon anymore, Star Wars books that I still want to read. Um, and then I've got, you know, books of on uh, also non-canon, um, books of the Bible that I want to read, like Apocrypha stuff. And so I've got, like, all of this whole stack of stuff. And, um, and so I get done, I finally, like, snap to, and, um, and I can't find Aaron. And I have a giant stack of books, and my phone's in my back pocket, and partially out of, like, laziness, I was just like, well, I'm not going to set the books down. Like, he's probably around here somewhere. But then partially also out of just, like, pride, like, I can find my wife. Um, I end up walking around carrying my, like, huge stack of books around the bookstore. Um, again, this is multiple floors, 3,500 sections, very big store. How much? Big, big. 68,000 square feet. It's a city block of books. And I'm walking around looking for my wife. And, and over the course of a few minutes, um, those few minutes quickly turned into 10, which turned into 20, which turned into 30. Um, and my pride of just like, I can find her, has now like turns into anger, where I'm like, she's hiding from me. Like, where is she? Like, I'm like dodging, trying to like catch her, like running from me. And that anger of like, why would she do this? She knows that like, we need, we have, we have, like a, we have a reservation for dinner. She's hiding from me. I can't find her. And, and I'm just, I never put the books down to like, hey, where are you? Uh, and then that anger starts turning into fear where I'm like, I've got to, I don't know what to do. She's been kidnapped. She's probably dead somewhere. Like the Portland, like, I don't know, gang, like the, whatever that would be, like these bearded, like baristas uh, <laughs> stole my wife. And so I'm like terrified. And so I'm like, okay, I got to go. I'm just going to buy the books. And then I guess I'll call the police. Like, that, like that's priorities, I guess. So I go and I buy the books. I have no idea where she is. And so I finally get them and they give me a bag and I call her and I'm just like, hey, where are you? And she's like, Oh, hey, I knew you'd take a while, so I went across the street. She, what's up? It's like, nothing. Uh, like, she had no, she to this day doesn't know that I had this, uh, it wasn't a panic attack, but freak out. And so she literally, I walk across the street, and she was waiting for me. And, but this, I mean, that, that is obviously crazy, um, but this happens on a regular basis, where we go into somewhere, and then I just, I get lost, and I'm basically a toddler with a driver's license. <laughs> Now, I tell that story because as we've been beginning this year in the Gospel of Mark, 
specifically today ending our second little mini-series within the Gospel of Mark that we've been calling Following Jesus. Um, I, I don't know if you're like me, that as we've been reading this, I, I feel this similar pattern that's going on within the world um, with me in the bookstore, um, where you have a bunch of people that are all running around the world proclaiming to have some kind of um, connection to the name of Jesus, um, but running around with anger and fear and craziness, and no one really knows where he is. I mean, we've got, I mean, just scrolling through this week, we've got like Lady Gaga's making comments around what Jesus says or doesn't say, and Taylor Swift, and Jerry Falwell, and Donald Trump, conservatives and liberals. They're pro this people that want Jesus on their side. Anti that people have Jesus on their side. There's flat earthers that the Bible's on our side, and there's anti vaxxers that they want to take the Bible for them. There's everybody and anybody, and even like pro vax and anti everybody wants the Bible on their side, and, and the whole thing is what I feel like is everybody's running around the bookstore and it leaves me with this picture of Jesus of this like cosmic spiritual Stretch Armstrong. How many of you had a Stretch Armstrong growing up? Am I seriously the only one? And me and Isaac. That's how you wanna become a pastor. Go get a Stretch Armstrong. Those are the two. The, the little plushy, you at least know what I'm talking about. Okay, thank you. Stretch Armstrong. Um, this is, this is what I feel like as an American Christian right now, specifically American, evangelical, whatever language you want to use, is um, I just see this map of the country of America, and like Jesus is like somewhere in Nebraska, and you have all of these people that are pulling his arms and legs in like all these directions as he's getting stretched out, and, and everybody's claiming that Jesus is on my team, and that oh, this is the Christian perspective. Is this, I'm not the only one that feels this way. And so I, I watch this, that it's not just politicians or cultural figures, but then you have even pastors who are now on this map that are joining them, people that are supposed to have Jesus figure out. And they're marching proud first, uh, proudly, head first, in the direction that they think Jesus is waiting for them as they like take Jesus onto their private jets with their really you know, $1,000 sneakers. And I'm just left, okay, so what's going on here? And I, as I read over these things and I reflect on this, it's easy for me to get like fist-clenching, teeth-grindingly mad. And then I realize how I've got like Jesus in a headlock and I'm running with him, like in my own direction as well. There's this, this just stretch Armstrong Jesus is a very real thing that's happening within our country. And so it leaves those of us who genuinely want to follow Jesus kind of confused. Like which, which one of the Jesus people is the right Jesus people? And so part of the Following Jesus series, my hope has been in looking at the oldest gospel account of Jesus's life is that kind of like me in Powell's books is that I might put the books down and just call the person that I'm looking for and just let them tell us where they are and, and where to find them and what it looks like to actually be on their side. And so for the past three weeks, we were in verses 1, 14 through 15, which we're finally done, um, but which you'll see as we'll see more of it is 1, uh, 14 through 15. One more time, I'm going to make you guys read this because this is the summary of everything Jesus has come to do, where Jesus was preaching that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. And so what we've been looking at for the past three weeks is in all these different ways how whatever we want to put on Jesus at the center point of what he is about is the arrival and proclamation of this kingdom. This is a royal message that Jesus is bringing, that he's not coming to make you necessarily feel better about yourself. He's not coming necessarily that, that these concepts that of forgiveness or justification, the things that we all put at the front and center, Jesus' kingdom, my kingdom coming, this is what is at the center, this kingdom of God. And so this week as we continue and we look at the verses right after 14 and 15, we, we see what does it mean to repent and believe in this gospel? 
Because that's, that's the question. I had coffee with someone within our church who's asking questions about following Jesus. And I, I think I'm there, but I'm not sure if I'm there yet. And his question was, so what does it mean to repent and believe the gospel? And I kind of stuttered, and I basically um, just said, just wait a few weeks. Um, so if you're here, this is for you. Um, but the question is for all of us. As we hear Jesus' kingdom is coming, what does it mean to repent and believe? And that's where we're at today. And so why don't we look in verses 16 and 20 of chapter 1. And what we're going to do is we're going to read that, and then we're actually going to jump over to uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 2 as well. At the end, we'll see why we put these together. But we're going to read both of these, and then um, we'll get into it. We'll begin to kind of hopefully um, pull Jesus' appendages away from everybody and let Jesus speak for himself. Sound good? Okay. One, uh, 16. Let's read this together. Where Jesus, oh man, it says he was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Okay. Can we do a timeout? Five minutes. For those of you that feel like you're an agnostic when you wake up in the morning like me, remember that? You with me? Five minutes, it's gonna be worth it. Has nothing to do with the sermon, but so good. And if this doesn't work, I'll never do it again. Um, But I I, I feel like, okay. Alongside the Sea of Galilee, um, there's a whole sermon here that we're not gonna do, so you're gonna give me five minutes and then we'll go back to the discipleship stuff, okay? Alongside the Sea of Galilee, um, there's this thing that Bible scholars call um, and not even just Bible scholars, but scholars of ancient writings, they call them um, unconscious uh, evidences of reliability. And what that means is that sometimes when you read ancient documents, there are, in the ways that they're actually writing, ways that they're making claims that this is a reliable historical document without making claims that it is, just by writing. It exists out of a context that then you go, oh, look, it's real. And according to what's going on here, this, uh, this being alongside the Sea of Galilee, Mark referring to it as the Sea of Galilee is evidence of it it belonging to the perspective and the eyewitness account of someone who would have lived in that time around Jesus. It would have actually been like that. So uh, the best example I can think of is I was driving across uh, the Bologna Creek uh, earlier this week. And if I was talking to someone and I was saying, oh, I'm driving over the Bologna, they would have had a completely different picture in their mind if they were from like Missouri or Oklahoma, right? A creek is a river. That's not what the Bologna Creek is. That's cement. Um, in the same way that when we read the Sea of Galilee, um, the sea, it's not a sea. It's a very small lake. Um, if you've ever been to Lake Tahoe, it's smaller than Lake Tahoe. And you can see the other side of it. And you can see down the whole length of it. And, and so who calls it a Sea of Galilee? Um, only people that live there. Everybody else in the world, when you read their writings, they don't call it the Sea of Galilee. They call it a lake because it's a lake. Even Luke in his gospel, he refers to the Sea of Galilee as the lake. And so even what you have within this is what, what Bible scholars would refer to as an unconscious evidence of, authentic, of, of, of reliability. That this is an authentic document coming out of an authentic context with eyewitness accounts. Because you don't call it the Sea of Galilee unless you're one of the fishermen, specifically Peter, who's about to be introduced, who we know was with John Mark when this gospel was being written and helping giving the eyewitness feedback. He would have referred to it as the Sea of Galilee, and Mark would have just kept writing. Um, So if you're like me, and and you wake up an agnostic most mornings, um, this is helpful that what we're reading here is not just made up hundreds of years later. This is existing within time. So if that didn't work, we'll never do that again. But hopefully that helped for some of you guys. So let's get back into discipleship stuff. Um, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, this is Jesus. Jesus sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. 
which is funny. He could have just said his brother, but Simon, and, you know, the brother of Simon, Andrew. And they were casting in it into the sea, for they were fishermen. I don't know. Again, <laughs> Mark is so helpful for us. Why else would they be casting a, a net into the sea? For they were architects. <laughs> for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, uh, hey, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, and they were mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And then jump over. Let's look for one more, one more calling in 2, 13 through 14. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Let's pray. Um, Father, I feel um, overwhelmed with how much, uh, how much goodness there is in your word um, that I just could be overwhelmed at times. And so I pray that you would help us uh, to find what you're calling us to today. Uh, help me to be clear. Uh, help our hearts to be um, available and open to what you might want to speak to us. Um, but God, my prayer is that for each and every one of us today that we might contemplate what it is that we are following and that we might see your son is the only thing worth following. Let me pray. Amen. So whenever you read the Bible, it's good to ask lots of questions. Um, things like, you know, the Sea of Galilee. It can lead to lots of fun stuff um, like that. But when you read through this, one of the main questions that comes out to me in first reading it is, um, why do all of these people just get up and leave what they're doing? Do you notice that? Like, that they, Jesus, just, Jesus walks in and he's like, hey, you come with me. And they're like, okay. And they just like leave dad. <laughs> right. Or like, while they're like pulling, I just imagine them like fishing and they're bringing in fish. Right. And there's like seven of them all working together. And there's two. Okay. And like, they just leave the other guys to like scramble for it. Or Matthew, he's sitting down like at work and Jesus is like you, me, let's go. And he's like, all right. And he just gives it. Who leaves work like that? Like if someone came to your house and just like open the door and it's like this Jesus guy standing there, come with me. Where? <laughs> Who are you, right? Why would I follow you? Or if they showed up at work, like you're at work, and, and somebody just walks in you've never seen before, and he's kind of like looking at you. And you're just like, come here. <laughs> no, man, like I'm not going with you. And yet these, these, these uh, four, um, five individuals, and we would go on to be 12, and then even more men and women outside of the, the, the 12 uh, disciples, that Jesus says, follow me, and they just get up. They leave everything and follow him. And so that leads me to start asking questions. Why would anyone do that? And, and there's a cultural significance here that we miss. And so um, we have to go back to ancient Jewish elementary school in order to understand it. Um, so there's a couple different things that happen when this follow me language that apparently people just drop everything and follow when they hear it, that it connects all the way back to, and like I said, it goes all the way back to Jewish elementary school, uh, specifically what was called Beit Sefer or the house of the book that was specifically for kids six to 12. It was basically elementary school. And so these kids would go to school and they would, uh, they would memorize Torah over six years, memorize the first five books of the Bible. They'd have it all down, right? Um, and I don't know why our kids can't do that today, but I wrote Fortnite joke, question mark. Um, I forgot to write a Fortnite joke. Um, that's why they can't. Um, 
And so over those first six years, um, they weren't playing Fortnite. They were memorizing Torah. And within the five, first five books of the Bible, they had their family history locked into that. They had law. They had uh, social studies. They had religious studies. It was kind of, they were getting everything within these first five books of the Bible. And there's all of this crazy um, movement that happened within these kids. They used to, it, the, the old writings would tell us that um, mom and dad would walk their kid to school, their son or daughter, and they would put a blanket over them so it was dark. And they would have to walk to school with like a blanket over their head in the dark with mom and dad holding their hands. And it was, it was a way of having the children reenact the Exodus story of leaving in the middle of the night. And then they would come to the synagogue and one of the most um, honored rabbis um, in the town would read Psalm 119 over them. And they would be given, it was like snack time, a little slate um, with, with a drop of honey on it. And when he gave, got to the part of Psalm 119 where he said, your word is like honey, all the kids got to lick the honey. Right, And so you had, from the moment that these kids are like six years old, uh, something connecting themselves to the story and to this word in a way that, you know, that we do today. It's like flannel graph on steroids. And so what would happen is after Beit Sefer is then uh, most would graduate to go into family business or family life. But for the best of the best, specifically these boys, from the ages of 13 to 15, over the next two years, they would go on to memorize the rest of what we call the Old Testament. They would go on to memorize the prophets and the writings, the rest of the Tanakh um, was their understanding of it. And so at the time that while they were doing this over these two years, memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, they were also um, kind of working with dad um, of what the family business might be. So if you know, it was Peter, I'm learning to be a fisherman, or for Jesus, you know, working with Joseph to be a, a, a stonemason or a, a, a carpenter is how we translate it, or for Paul, learning how to tent make. And so what would happen is they'd be learning the family business, and then when that's done, most of them would then, at that point, transition into the family business. But for the best of the best of the best, after Beit Sefer, the house of the book, and Beit Talmud, the house of learning, there was the opportunity for Beit Midrash, the house of study. And this was unlike anything else, because it was not a synagogue, but a person. Boys uh, would then go at age 15 to go and seek out a teacher, a rabbi. They would go find out a rabbi whose teachings they loved, who they wanted to basically study under and become. And they would go to this rabbi and they would say to him, um, I want to be your disciple, or the Hebrew word is Talmudim, so let me into your Beit Midrash. Let me into your house of study. And then that rabbi would take the disciple and he would interview them on, on everything the Bible to make sure they knew the Bible backward and forward. And they had inter- how, what would you say about uh, this interpretation of this passage? And what do you think about the Nephilim in, in Genesis 6? And you know, all the craziness, he's going back and forth. And then at the end of the interview, there'd be one of two things that they would hear. One would be if they would fail. They would hear, my son, you know Torah and you know Torah well, but you are not able to be my Talbadim. Go home and have sons and pray that they become rabbis. Go home and take up the family business because you won't be studying to become a rabbi. Can you imagine the defeat? 15, you know, this is, you know, 15 years old. This is what you've given your life to so far. And you've proven yourself to be the best of the best of the best. And yet you're not that final hurdle. You weren't able to make it. And so now you have to return back to the family business. The amount of defeat that would be felt within this, for some of you, you felt that before with your dream job being lost or, you know, the college application going out and then not hearing back. To hear go home and hope your kids become rabbis. But for the best of the best of the best of the best, the rabbi would say, come, follow me. For the next 15 years, you'd be invited to follow this rabbi and you would have three goals in your time with this rabbi. The first goal you'll see behind me was to be with your rabbi 
you would follow your teacher. You would live with him, eat like him, eat at the same times as him, eat the same things that he ate. You would go to bed at the same time that he did, wake up at the same time that you would do. You would travel together with him. You would go everywhere that they went. You would watch him, listen to him, see his words and his teachings. You would be with him at all times of the day. There was a blessing that parents would regularly put on their kids as they went off into their 15 years of following a rabbi that was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea is that as your rabbi is walking around all day, kicking up the dust, you've got to take a shower at night because you're covered in the dust that your rabbi's been kicking up. The first goal of the disciple of the Talmudim was to be with their rabbi. The second was to become like them, to become like them, that you would embody and take on the way that they read the Bible, take on the way that they saw the world. You would pray like they do. You would sing like they do. Their mannerisms would be your mannerisms. Their tone would be your tone. You would become a copy of them. You know, the 21st century, we put such a high emphasis on becoming yourself. In the first century, the emphasis was on becoming somebody else, specifically your rabbi. The whole goal was to pay attention, to perfectly copy your rabbi. There's even one story of a dedicated uh, disciple named Akiva. And I love this. You can go read this um, this week. Um, who, uh, Akiva followed his uh, rabbi into the bathroom uh, to make sure that he was copying everything. Um, and so he writes down the three things that he learned from watching his rabbi go to the bathroom. And there's like, it's, it's awesome. You can read it online. It's real. I'm not kidding with you right now. Um, everything to like what direction he was facing and like how he took his like garb up. It's awesome. Go read it. Um, the whole point is for Rabbi Akiva and for all of the disciples of the, is to copy your rabbi. Everything about them would become you. And then finally, after being with them and becoming like them, that year 15 came around, you would go to do what your rabbi did. You would literally become like this embodied version of your rabbi in a different synagogue, or you would be a traveling teacher like your rabbi. You would continue what was referred to as your rabbi's yoke, their teaching, their interpretation of scripture, their way and who they were. So you would have generations and generations of copies of rabbis going all the way back, copying specific interpretations. Before like the internet, this is how you copy and pasted your teachings. You'd put them in a person and then send that person out into the world. And so here's, when we come back to the question, why did these guys drop everything? When these fishermen hear a rabbi walk up to them and say, follow me, they are hearing on par with what would be a full ride scholarship. Best job opportunity you could ever hear. Glory, honor, prestige. And the rabbi is like, follow me. I don't care about your grades. I don't need to see your GPA. You don't need a proof. Come with me. Come be my disciple. Be my Talmudim. And they would then, all 12 of them, when it was all said and done, and even then many more men and women with those 12, would be tasked at the end of, um, you can just flip over if you want to read it, in the end of Matthew, after Jesus is resurrected, he gathers up his disciples and this is after he's been resurrected. I love this in 17. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. <laughs> so resurrected Jesus. He's standing there and they're like, it's you. And there's still some guys like, I don't know about this. <laughs> Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds like a king language. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. So you guys have been with me. You've become like me. You're doing what, now go do what I did and go make more disciples. And then 2000, that's 2,000 years of church history, is people doing that well and sometimes not very well at all. Now, 
the reality is that although it might be it's surprising when we read this, because for many of us, when we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus or on team Jesus, um, we use this language of Christian. We identify as, you know, I identify as a Christian on my, you know, Facebook. I put like Christian, or if we're really like, you know, cool, we put like follower of Jesus or something like that. Um, but we use this language of Christian, and that's how we identify, and that's what we put left, right, and center. And, and the thing is, is, although that's not bad, we just need to give some um, credence to the fact that that word is only used three times in the New Testament. Three times. And it's never used by Christians, except for one, one of the times where Christian is quoting what somebody else is saying. Christian is used three times. It's not used by Christians. It was used as a, a term of like bullying or making fun of Christians. And so we, we all identify as Christian and that's because we started taking it. We're like, if that's what you want to call us, like I'm rubber, you're glue kind of a thing. Like, well, cool, that's what we're going to be. However, compared to the three, the primary word the New Testament uses to describe people who are on team Jesus, whatever language we want to use for that is disciple. 269 times compared to the three. This is how Christians refer to themselves. As a disciple, as a Talmudim, a student, a pupil, a, a intern, an apprentice, where they were learning through experience with the rabbi how to take on, to be with the rabbi, become like them, and do what they did. And because a disciple exists only because of their relationship, their relationship to their teacher or rabbi, this connects us to the other great reality that disciple is used 269 times, and 60 of the 90 times that people talk to Jesus in the Gospels, they refer to him as rabbi. As teacher. And so Jesus is absolutely Lord, absolutely Savior, absolutely Son of God, and Messiah, and King, and Shepherd, and whatever language you want to use, and friend, yes, he is more than rabbi, but he cannot be less than that. And so for, for many of us, we've missed out on discipleship, and we missed out on Jesus as rabbi. But the reality is, is that this is the heart of discipleship. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of what Jesus came to do, was to make disciples, that's what he's calling us to. And the absence of discipleship in many of us, our understanding of this Jesus thing is what Dallas Willard called the great omission from modern Western Christianity. We have millions of people. To go back to the beginning, we've got the this, this Stretch Armstrong Jesus. Millions of people all running around and proclaiming devotion to Jesus. But like me in the city of books, they're mistaken about where he actually is and where he wants to meet us. The call of Jesus to repent and believe the gospel is a call to become my disciple, to follow me. And so the greatest need in your life and in my life and throughout our world today is whether or not those of us who identify as followers of Jesus will in fact do the very thing he's calling us to be, which is his disciples. We have entirely too many people, and I'm right in the middle of it all, that we are exerting our strength, pulling on Jesus to conform him into what we want him to be. The, the terrifying reality is that it's a reversal of discipleship is what happens with, within many of us. You see, many of us, we come to Jesus, and not with the idea that I'm going to follow him, I'm going to be with him, I'm going to become like him, I'm going to do what he did, but we come to Jesus and we say, you're going to be with me, you're going to become like me, you're going to do what I do, you're going to become my disciple, Jesus. And so the reason, that's, that's what happens when the Stretch Armstrong thing is happening, is Jesus doesn't speak and say, you guys follow me, we have all these people that want to take the Jesus name, take the Jesus guy, but, but really in the way that we see fit. The terrifying reality of this is where we miss out on Jesus all the while having his name on our lips almost every single day. Dallas Willard, to quote it and just say again what I've, what I've just said, he says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will in fact become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. 
steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. For Christians, the great question today is are you following Jesus or are you insisting that Jesus follow you? Similarly, for those of you that are here that you don't identify as a Christian and to your whole thing is I don't need, you know, the disciple thing. I would just say there's, there's a couple of different realities that you, I would invite you to weigh through. One of them is the reality that we as human beings are uh, made up of, of three um, buckets, as it were, um, in which we pour ourselves, of meaning, freedom, and community. And this is like, I don't know why I opened up. This is such a can of worms, I'm sorry. But freedom, community, and meaning. And um, when human beings are healthy, we have a good amount of ourselves dispersed in each one of these. Freedom, meaning, and community. When we get unhealthy is when we place more in one of these than the others, and in doing so, then we, we, it's like we become malnourished. And we live in a culture, to quote um, Australian pastor Mark Sayers, he says that we are drowning in freedoms and we are thirsting for meaning. And what he means by that is that in the midst of those three buckets of community, freedom, and meaning is we have poured everything into freedom and then we're surprised that we don't have relationships. We're surprised that we don't have meaning in our lives. Because meaning comes at the expense of freedom. Community comes at the expense of freedom. And so the whole question is, is you don't want to be a disciple because you don't want to give up your freedoms. What I'm saying is you're actually not sacrificing your freedom. You're sacrificing meaning and purpose for your life because freedom does not give you what you want. And so the invitation of Jesus is maybe just trust him and learn to follow him, to give up some of that freedom and find community and meeting in the process. Um, there's a whole thing more than we can do. But to bring this back, the invitation for each and every single one of us, whether we have been insisting Jesus follow us and doing the Stretch Armstrong thing, or, or if we've been insisting that true life is found in really, really drowning in freedom, but in absence of meaning and community, to come to Jesus is to allow ourselves to become his disciple, to truly hear his words, follow me. To be with him, become like him, and do what he did. And so what, what, what does this look like? To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he did. Let's just look at each of these three, and then we're gonna end by showing how Jesus is unlike any other rabbi. But first, how he is like a rabbi. Jesus invites us to be with him, to live in the presence of God, to live in the presence of Jesus to draw our attention to him being with us through his spirit throughout the week. In fact, so central to this for Jesus was this is our next teaching series uh, as we continue in, the Mark, in Mark's gospel, moving from following Jesus to now being with Jesus. Because this is the central thing that all of Christianity emerges from or following discipleship of Jesus, being with Jesus. If we're trying to become like Jesus and do what he did, but we're not spending any time with him, that's gonna be difficult. And so we need to be with Jesus. This happens in a couple different ways. One of them is on Sundays when we're gathering here with one another in the presence of Jesus. We're what we call being responsible family members. That This is our Sunday gathering. I mean, throughout the Gospels, Jesus continually shows up at synagogue. If anybody could skip church, who do you think it was? <laughs> right? Bible memorized, right? Like, oh, you guys are singing to God. I am like one with the Father. <laughs> And, and yet Jesus is regularly showing up and, and attending in synagogue worship. To be with Jesus is to gather with his people, to sing songs with him. Throughout the rest of the week, though, is where many of us find ourselves starving to be with Jesus. And it's possible to live this way. To live with the presence of Jesus with us on Monday through Saturday and throughout our week. 
to learn these practices of drawing our attention to him through uh, practices of silence and solitude that we're gonna be spending three weeks on starting in three weeks. Through set times of prayer, of fasting, of Sabbath, on uh, chewing on scripture throughout our day. One of the reasons why nobody does it anymore, but people prayed over their meals uh, back in the day was because this seemed like an opportune time, not just to like pray that, you know, there's no demons in our food. Um, <laughs> but it was specifically so that we had three set times throughout the day where we were drawing our attention back to the God who graciously gives us all things. Living in the presence of God. This is one of the greatest gifts of Christianity, the greatest gifts of discipleship to Jesus is unlike the absent God of atheism or deism or the distant God of Islam or the impersonal deity of Eastern religion, Christianity declares a God who creates, sustains, saves, and rules, but is also present in all of reality with his people in a special way. So to be with Jesus is to find the ways throughout the day where you can be with him. Being with Jesus moves into us becoming like him, to become the sort of person of love that Jesus exemplifies himself as, that we learn to be like Jesus in loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves, where we pattern our lives off of Jesus, maybe not to the extent of Akiva, right, weirdo? But, but Jesus does call us to become like him in the ways that we see our money and our sexuality and our thoughts and what we do with power, which is actually, it seems, even more um, scary than, than bathroom technique. The question is, how do we change? How do we come like Jesus? You could divide it up into saying that we become more like Jesus through truth, practice, community, and all three of those things being saturated in the Holy Spirit, not, not through determinism. Um, which is what many of us think we become like Jesus through. We become more like Jesus as we expose ourselves to truth, where like Jesus, we dedicate ourselves to the story of Israel, to the scriptures, meditating and listening and studying and applying them. From these scriptures, Jesus found his identity and who he was and what he had come to do. And the same is true for us, that we commit ourselves to what it means to become like a true human in Jesus is by studying the scriptures. If you're looking for a place to start, um, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing Jesus' teachings on not only identity of who we are as God's people, but ethics and prayer. We also become more like Jesus, not just through truth, but through practice. Practicing to become like Jesus, where we, we, we pra- I don't know how else, practice. Like learning to play an instrument. We, we try for a season, just what would it look like to live more simply, to live more generously, to live more slowly and presently to what's going on, to take on a posture of justice and care. I was having dinner with a person uh, in our church this week who was talking about how over this year they're, they're taking on the practice of trying to not just read the Sermon on the Mount, but memorizing it as a practice of becoming like Jesus, working that so deep into them that it begins to come up in ways that they didn't even know it could. Use your imagination. I mean, there's, there's people that they, they have a spiritual practice of just smiling as much as they can because they believe joy is a fruit of the spirit. And like, and I'm just gonna, because I believe as I smile, I get happier. And so I'm just gonna start smiling all the time. People that take on little practices of slowing, choosing the, the slowest lane of traffic, getting in the longest line at the grocery store, simplifying their lives, learning how to be gentle. There's people that, that they see it as a spiritual practice when there's a bug in the house not to kill it. Not, not out of inherently anything crazy about nature, but simply because of the slowness that it takes to watch and to take in this moment that's happening here. And so we change from truth, we change from practice, and we change when we find ourselves in a community of other disciples where we are responsible family members 
asking ourselves and asking one another, who am I becoming? And allowing others over time to see and name and encourage and exhort those things within us. This is how we change, when all of this becomes saturated in Jesus. I mean, if you go back to Mark 1, when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't just say that to Peter, right? There's no Batman Christians. There's no Batman disciples. He calls, he says, follow me, y'all, follow me, you, all, plural, follow me. A community of people that are working to follow Jesus with one another. And he says that I will make you become. Jesus does this work through the spirit. I mean, the reality is, is this is the thing. Most of us, we look at Jesus's example and the way that he walks and we go, yeah, there's no way I could be like that. And so we settle for kind of just Jesus being like the guy up in heaven who likes me sometimes and hopefully likes me when I die. When discipleship means that Jesus is desiring to bring far more than that into your life. And so the reality is, is that as we be with Jesus, we can actually end up becoming like him through his empowering work of the spirit, through practice and through community and through hearing truth that like learning to type that for semester, like took me semesters to get QWERTY down. Why isn't ABCD? It's QWERTY up here. Took forever. And, and now over time, I can, I can write without even looking at the keyboard. And most of you right now, you could put your hands out and you could start typing without even a keyboard being there. The reality is that practice and truth in community, you can, Jesus is not content with just you waiting for him to come back. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. And so finally, when we become like Jesus after being in the midst of being with him, it leads to us doing what Jesus did, which as you read through Mark's gospel and as we're going to do over the next year, we find Jesus doing things like preaching the gospel of the kingdom, teaching his way, praying for the, the healing of the sick, Casting out demons, doing justice, eating and drinking with those who are far from God, praying and prophesying, standing up to religious hypocrisy and pride, speaking truth to political power. Jesus embodies each and every one of these things. And the problem is, is that we read this list and we go, that sounds like a lot of fun. And we try to go be, do what Jesus did without ever being with him or becoming like him. And so Jesus says, be with me, become like me, and then let's go and let's, let's the kingdom is at hand. And so Jesus, in the passage that we're talking about, he doesn't, well, you know, what does he say? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, which again is another question when you're reading. What? Did you ever read that and think that Jesus like hit his head or something? Like, follow me and I will make you people fishers. Like, he's watching them fishing. What's going on here? Jesus is um, using language, obviously, that they would understand. He doesn't say, follow me and I will make you the eschatological representatives of the inaugurated reign of the cosmic king right? He could have, <laughs> but he says, people fisher. He's using language that they understand and also using language that they would have understand as Jews. Of Jeremiah, in chapter 16, he talks about the day when God is going to come as king and he's going to send out his fishermen who are going to go out and bring people. And, and Jesus, even more than that, when you read through the Old Testament and you see the waters as a regular symbol of chaos, what Jesus seems to be getting at is this, this prophesied moment where the king would come and God would send out people to bring people out of the chaos and destruction of this world into his kingdom, that that's what's about to happen. This picture became so true that this is what um, many would see as Jesus saying being fishers of men is a connection to what the practice of baptism would be like. You know, it looks like the pastor's fishing for people. Like if you walked into a room and, and like somebody was already underwater, right? And they about to, and you pull somebody up and they're flailing around. You're fishing for people, right? Is what some people have put in there. Um, that one's free. 
<laughs> and, and here's the reality is, is this is where the turning point happens, where what Jesus has come to do is so different than any other rabbi. So if you fell, you, you fell asleep, that's okay. This was a fire hydrant. This is the moment that you can't miss. Jesus is more than rabbi. He's not less, but he also is more than rabbi. Because what Jesus has come to do is not just to bring what he says in an interpretation of the scriptures, but actually it's fulfillment. Jesus comes not just simply to have an interpretation of how to read the Bible and how to obey God, but actually the acknowledgement that something new is breaking into humanity, what he calls the kingdom of God, that it is at hand. And Jesus comes not just to make fishermen, people that go into the chaos of the world to bring people out, but he himself does this. He jumps into the chaos of this world where he's, he's meeting, where we're going to see in the following weeks with the sick, with people that are, that are oppressed by this spiritual evil, with injustice and corruption in himself. He casts himself into the brokenness and chaos of the world and then brings himself in and with this, this, this net of discipleship that the kingdom is at hand. There's another world coming. Follow me and learn how to belong to that world that I'm bringing. You see, Jesus was different than any other rabbi for so many reasons. The first is every other rabbi, when we talked about this, that, you know, come, let me into your, your, your bait, midrash. Let me in. Let me be your disciple. You see, the difference with every other rabbi was that they had to be sought out. The disciple, you proved yourself. You were the best of the best of the best. You memorized, literally memorized the Bible. Proved yourself to be the best. And then you were allowed to go find your rabbi. What we find in Jesus is this kind of rogue rebel, like, you know, go against the way everybody else does it, rabbi, who he's walking around and he's saying, he's, he's the one that's seeking out the disciples. He's not calling for them to seek out. And even more than that, the people that he calls to be his disciples are not the best of the best of the best, but the ordinariest of the ordinariest, which is a word apparently. I wrote it in my notes this week and I didn't get the red line. And so I learned a new word this week and it's ordinariest. Jesus is calling for disciples who are not the best of the best of the best, but ordinary fishermen. And not only the best, the most ordinary, but also the worst of the worst. And in Matthew, this tax, tax collector, preying upon his people, taxing more than he needed to to put some of it in his pocket, a representative for Rome who has its boot on his own people. Jesus is not calling the best of the best, the people that have the Bible memorized. He's calling the ordinary and the worst of the worst. And he's saying, you're the sort of people that I wanna be with. You're the sort of people that I want to be, have become like me. You're the sort of people that I want you to send you out to do what I did. The second way that Jesus is different than any other rabbi is that he's not simply bringing an interpretation of scripture, like I said, but a royal announcement. All the, you can read all the writings of all the other Jewish rabbis and it's all takes and commentaries on scripture. And it's really good. Some of it's weird, some of it's very weird, some of it's really cool. Jesus is not bringing commentary on scripture. He's saying that he's bringing a royal announcement of a kingdom that is at hand, that something is breaking into the present from the future and he's inviting people to be a part of that with him. And the third way is that this kingdom is going to be inaugurated not just through this royal rabbi or this rogue rabbi, but also through this this redeeming rabbi who does for humanity what it cannot do itself, that we cannot jump out of the chaos of this world, that we cannot become the best of the best of the best. And so what we do is we just settle for making Jesus look like us. You see, the reason why you tell Jesus to follow you is because you really don't feel like you have it in you to be that. 
And so instead of going to Jesus and asking him to give you this spirit, something that could transform you, what we do is we settle for making Jesus look like us. And the reality is, is that what that does is that cuts the cross down at its legs and says that we don't actually need a Jesus who redeems us so that we can be more than we are. A Jesus who can save us from what we are. And then finally, Jesus is not just this redeeming rabbi whose death does what we cannot do for ourselves, but this resurrected rabbi that to follow him, when Jesus says, follow me to each and every one of us, is not just a way to follow his way of being, but also where he's going which in his resurrection is that we're following him into our own resurrection. This resurrection of a world where death reigned that now life is all that there are. And so to end, the reality is, is that what's so sad is when we settle for Stretch Armstrong Jesus and we miss out on discipleship is we miss out on the very thing that Jesus came to do. See, discipleship is the central thing of why Jesus lived, why Jesus died, why Jesus rose from the dead as we've just seen. Jesus came so that you could be with him. Jesus came so that you could, I mean, Jesus became like us so that we could become like him, as one church father puts it. And Jesus came so that you might do what he did, that you might not just herald the kingdom of God, but actually rule with him, is what the apostle Paul would say. And so all of this is happening, that that when we just talk about being Christians because I'm not Buddhist or whatever, or or whatever you might have, this stretch Armstrong Jesus is to miss out on the whole thing that Jesus came to do, which was to make disciples. For him to copy and paste through his spirit himself into you, that the world would have more representatives of Jesus in a world that needs more representatives of Jesus. And the reason the world is so dark is because instead of being representatives for Jesus, we have a lot of Christians who have just wanted Jesus to be representative for them. And so let's just, let's pray from here.